This is Michael Easley in Context. Thanks for joining the broadcast. Today we have Elizabeth Urbanowitz. This is a fascinating story and connection. Our listeners will know Christopher Yuan, who's a great friend of mine for many years now. We met when we were at Moody, and I've had him on the podcast many times, and I've had him teach in churches where I've served. And I was with Christopher just a few weeks ago, and he said, you have to have Elizabeth on your podcast. I said, okay, say no more. Elizabeth spent 10 years teaching elementary school kids in a Christian school, which we're going to talk about. And during that time, she, well, I'm going to summarize what it said. Kids maybe couldn't recognize, evaluate, and reject some of the philosophies that they're encountering in the culture. So this led her to start something called the Foundation Worldview, and it provides an alternative education model, comparative worldview, and it's an apologetics curriculum for kids and teens. So Elizabeth, what do I need to add to your little Vita there so folks will know a little bit more about you? Well, I think that was pretty great. I started out as an educator, and I'm continuing as an educator just in a different role in producing materials to equip parents and kids pastors and educators to get the kids God has placed in our care thinking critically about the truth of the Christian worldview. Now, you're not married or have kids yet, correct? That is correct. And yet you got this passion for kids. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. So I do. I say that in this season, you know, whether singleness for me is for a season or for life, I love being able to have the gift of time to equip others who are in really busy seasons of parenting or other things of ministry to be able to provide resources for them to use with the kids that God has placed in their care. That's amazing. Now, your education, were you at Biola? Is that right? For a master's degree. That is correct. Yes. Uh I got a master's in Christian apologetics there. Ah, so this is connecting the dots. And prior to that, your undergrad was where? So I did my undergrad at Gordon College, just outside of Boston, and then did a master's in education at Northern Illinois University. You're three degrees above zero. I love it. All right. (laughs) Obviously, even in the course, let me qualify this because we don't know each other yet. But we had four kids. Hannah, who's behind the board, is my oldest, and she's the producer of this program. And all kids had different educational requirements, needs. Mm -hmm. Some did better in mainstream and private and Christian. Mm -hmm. And in the end, Cindy and I both never thought we'd homeschool. But in the end, our last daughter, we had her in a tutorial. And we always told parents when we encouraged them in their own you know, parenting, because parents freak out about education, rightly so. (laughs) And we always said, listen, each semester, each year, you evaluate. It's not a permanent thing. I've come full circle, Elizabeth, where I tell people, you're crazy to have your kid in a public school today. Mm. Unless you're in Mayberry RFD, you better be really careful. (laughs) And even Christian schools. And I was part of a Christian school group. So when I read you were in a Christian school and you said, not to read too much between the lines, it still ain't cutting it. Yeah, I mean, just when we look at the environment in which we're raising our kids, you know, we know that the truth of God's word never changes. You know, God is always in the business of saving people, and that never changes. But what does change is the cultural context in which we find ourselves. And we see this even when we look in the book of Acts. You know, the apostle Paul spoke to Jews differently than he did to Greeks, and he understood the cultural context in which his audience was found. And that's something that we have to make sure that we're doing with our kids, that just that thinking, you know, a Christian school can be a great option for many kids for their education, but just thinking that by having them in a Christian school, that that's enough to develop a biblical worldview, enough to equip them to evaluate the thousands of messages that they face on a monthly basis. You know, that's an assumption that most of the time is not 
true. So we have to understand this cultural moment, understand what our kids' needs are, and then understand how to meet those needs. When I was pastoring in a part of a church that had a very large Christian school, one of the ongoing challenges, well, it's not unlike people in a church expect the pastor to be everything, you know, all things to all people. You know, you're an apologetic, an evangelist, a prophet, uh, you know, deal with cultural issues, et cetera. And somewhat the Christian school gets the same bludgeoning. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be hard on the Christian school, right. but but somewhere critical thinking and especially a biblical worldview got lost in what was it? The teachers coming in? Was it testing? From your experience of 10 years, what was it that you saw that there's a disconnect between these important biblical worldview, thinking critically, and what happened then in most education outcomes? Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors, and I'm going to share with you what I saw, you know, and what research does back. But there's always, you know, there, it's never a simple <laughs> solution, right, um, you know, right. so I don't want to, I don't want to paint, paint with two broad strokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But one of the things is, you know, since the internet and then since the invention of the iPhone, when was that? 2008, I think, you know, the vast quantities of information that are available to our children and that they're confronted with at all times has just grown by leaps and bounds. You know, in one year of a child's life, they'll be confronted with more competing truth claims than most people throughout human history have been confronted with in their entire life. And so I think, you know, say just- that again, say that, say that again for our folks. I mean, that that's like, hello, let them hear that one more time. <laughs> so in one year of our child's one lives, year. they're going to Gosh. be confronted with more competing truth claims than most people throughout human history have been confronted with in their entire lives. So truth doesn't change. It hasn't changed. But what needs to change is the skills that we give the next generation to carefully evaluate the ideas that are coming their way, you know, faster than the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's one yeah. thing is that, you know, there was just such a huge shift culturally in 2008, you know, just with this prevalence of technology, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of good things that come Correct. along with it, but we just really need to change our game plan. You know, there's other factors that go along with it is, you know, like we're born into this world and we're born into a specific time and a specific culture. And we just grow up thinking like, oh, this is the way things are with a lot of times not understanding, you know, the hundreds of years of history that are behind where we find ourselves. So a lot of times, you know, sometimes weaknesses in Christian schools, and I mean, most Christian educators are doing a great job and are, you know, like are utilizing, you know, like all the tools that they have in front of them. But a lot of times what we don't realize is with even the Christian education movement, what happened, you know, in when it really boomed in like the 60s and 70s is we just took this secular humanist model of education and said, okay, now we're going to do this with Jesus involved, without actually stepping back and asking, is this model that we have in our public schools, does this align with God's design for the child? Does this align with God's design for the family? Does this align you know, with God's design for discipleship? So we're just kind of using the system that we haven't really evaluated, and then we have this you know, prevalence of information. So there's a lot of different factors involved in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now, you start out young. You talk about engaging kids as young as four. Most parents are going to say, I'm just trying to get them to obey and brush their teeth and (laughs) put their clothes in the hamper. How do I get them to think in a worldview apologetic framework? Yes. And that's not an easy thing to do because, again, I shared with you, you know, at the beginning of this time that that's really the gift that God has given me in not having children of my own right now and that I do have the time to create resources for others because parents are so busy. And, you know, 
parenting a four-year-old is an exhausting job. And most parents of four-year-olds have other children as well. So what we like to do at Foundation Worldview, you know, at that four-year-old range, the kids' critical thinking skills have not yet begun to develop. That's usually around the eight, nine range when they can start considering perspectives outside of their own. So at the four, five, six, seven year range, what we're doing is we're just trying to lay a very solid foundation. And so, you know, the materials we create are not the end all be all, you know, there needs to be many other things involved in a child's upbringing for them, you know, to really be discipled well, but we're just trying to meet a need in actually understanding, (laughs) you know, how to think well and how to think biblically. So what we do is we look at, okay, how is God designed a four-year-old? You know, a four-year-old's body is very important to them. You know, most four-year-olds don't have really great gross or fine motor control. You know, they need to be doing a lot of things, a lot of big movements, you know, a lot of talking loudly and whispering. And so what we do is we just teach basic truths of the Christian worldview, truths about truth, truths about God, truths about creation, truths about humans, truths about right and wrong. And we involve the kids' bodies a lot. And so we play a lot of games and we turn everything into a game. Like for example, one you know lie right now in our culture is that whatever we feel is true. Whatever we feel points us to reality, which we know from scripture that, you know, being emotional beings is part of being created in the image of God. But the side of the fall, our emotions many times point us away from truth. So first we play a game and we just teach them that truth is what is real. And we'll give them some sentences and say, okay, if the sentence that you hear is true, we want you to throw up your arms and yell truth as loud as you can. And if the sentence is not true, we want you to cross your arms and say not true. And then we'll give them sentences, you know, like the sun usually shines during the day. It's true. And then a silly sentence like, puppies run on the ceiling. That's not true. That's silly. Then we'll add in feelings. And we'll talk about, okay, what are feelings? And we'll give them sentences that are based on feelings. Like, I don't like Mondays. And we'll talk about how feelings change from person to person. But our feelings can't change the truth of things outside Mm -hmm. of us. So then we'll give them Mm -hmm. sentences that are feelings and they have to hug themselves and say feelings. And then the kids just turn it into a game. I have a friend who's gone through our early childhood worldview curriculum and she says, you know, sometimes when her four and five-year-old are in the car, they want to play the game, I'm thinking of an animal. And other times they want to play the truth and feelings game. (laughs) You know, so we're just training them at a (laughs) young age to think well. (laughs) Yeah, I tell adults all the time, you can't fact away a feeling. One of my dear friends here in the area, we talk about a moral therapeutic model that the Christian church has become, how do you feel about it and how do you respond mm-hmm. to your feelings? But I'm off base here, off topic. But it's important and true. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, attachment theory is something, I don't know if you have delved into or not, but Cindy and I got exposed to, atta- three of our four kids were adopted. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we used to talk about bonding and now we talk mm-hmm. more specifically about attachment And so I'm hearing you talk about a four-year-old, and we could also talk about concrete versus abstract, which is what Mm -hmm. you're doing with, Mm -hmm. you know, big gestures and movements before they can get to abstract thinking. Have you thought any, or are you thinking through how attachment works in this whole, you know, model? Because some parents, let's just say, struggle with attaching Mm -hmm. at various stages. And what we've read, zero to three, or when you said four, I thought, yeah, I get that. Attachment theorists say zero to three is irreplaceable for kids. And by the time they're five, it's almost concrete, which is Mm -hmm. kind of chilling. I don't want to say they're always right about all these things, but it's a little chilling to think that a kid's pretty hardwired by five. 
Yeah, and that that is true. So what we're talking about is, you know, they're interrelated, you know, getting them to think well and then attaching, you know, to parents. So those are both part of discipleship and ultimately, you know, the formation of who our children are. They are slightly different things in that, you know, we're not going to get our children to think well if they don't have a strong emotional bond with us, you know, so we can't do that. So really in like what you're talking about, you know, especially with adoption, you know, when children are adopted, you know, even six months and beyond attachment can be way more challenging, you know, than when they're adopted straight from birth, just because of all of the hard wiring that's going on in the brain, you know, the, 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 the neurological pathways that are being developed for them to understand, okay, when I cry, does someone come to feed me? Does someone come to change my diaper? So yeah, so those things are incredibly important. And so we're not, very much focused on attachment because we're coming after the stage when that is really developed. But the way that we create all of our resources helps strengthen those bonds. We don't create like all of our... All of our resources are video, but we make them so that the parent has to be involved. Like you can't just press play and say, okay, go do your worldview, go do your critical thinking, go do your hermeneutics, you know, for the day that we create it in a way that the parent has to be involved and has to be doing something with the child. Because obviously through, we have one consistent teacher throughout, which is me usually, or always this far, so that they, you know, kind of like a Mr. Rogers, they feel like the person on the screen loves them. cares about them, but there needs to be that flesh and blood person there with them because our kids aren't going to care about the truth of the Christian worldview if they're not seeing the gospel modeled before them in the relationships. Good. Okay. You had a conversation on Mike Winger's YouTube. You talked about seven lies that kids will believe unless you do something about it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on all these, but I do want a a few of them that struck me. Follow your heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have this broken record thing. I'm a pretty curmudgeon guy, and I tell parents (laughs) from the pulpit, I say, do not tell your kid to ask Jesus into his heart, Mm. because if they're so concrete, Jesus shrinks down, goes into their chest cavity, opens a door on their heart, sits down in a chair, closes the door, and they have no concept of what a relationship is. Mm. So I was attracted to that when you said, this is a a lie, basically, that they're believing. Follow your heart. How do you talk to a four, five, six-year-old about that, Elizabeth? Yeah, so really the foundation is is even just kind of that whole, you know, truth versus feelings that I just explained to you. I usually like to explain that kind of like, if you ever seen The Karate Kid, truth versus feelings is kind of like the wax on, wax off. It's like, really, are we spending like, you know, a whole half hour or a whole hour on this? And then all of a sudden, things in culture come that are telling your kid to follow his or her heart, or, you know, like his heart is always going to guide him in the right way. Or if you feel like a girl, but you have a boy's body, it's the inside that's true. And all of a sudden you realize that the truth versus feelings is the wax on, wax off like, oh, I know karate now. (laughs) I know the truth. And so it's really important that our kids understand the difference between something that they're feeling and then what we're observing as true in reality, that sometimes our feelings are going to point us towards the truth and sometimes they're not. And from a biblical worldview, we know exactly why this is because we're living on this side of the fall and we still are image bearers, you know, so we still reflect the holy God uniquely and 
and we are broken in having a sin nature. And so it's really important that our kids understand this because everything in our culture is going to be telling them, you know, that their inner desires are true. If the, for those listening, if you've never read um, Strange New World by Carl Truman or his academic book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, great summary of how we got to a place culturally where we think that everything that we feel is something that must be expressed and celebrated by everyone else. But that's so important for our kids to understand because everything that they hear in culture, whether it's on YouTube or TikTok or Disney Plus or in the classroom or on a billboard, you know, or on a bag of chips in the grocery store, (laughs) you know, is going to be telling them to follow their feelings. Another one you have here is that faith is the opposite of knowledge. This is one I'm very passionate about. I call it kind of like the Hobby Lobby lie, which don't get me wrong, I love Hobby Lobby. Um, but <laughs> um, And they sell some great things. But, you know, like you'll be in Hobby Lobby and like there'll be like, you know, like this little plaque for your home that's like with faith, all things are possible. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Like if I believe strongly enough that I can fly and I jump <laughs> off my roof, it's possible? Like, no, we all know that that's not true. But our culture and sometimes even we as Christians have bought into this lie that faith is this blind, irrational leap into the dark. And, you know, that there's science, which is factual, and then there's faith, which is blind, irrational, and feelings-based. And when we look at Scripture, that's not at all what we see. When we look at the narrative, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is continually asking humans to put their trust in Him who we cannot see because everything we can see points to him. I mean, even when we think of the giving of the law to the people of Israel, you know, God didn't just swoop in out of nowhere and have Moses just stand before the people and say, okay, you have to live like this. No, what had the people of Israel just seen? I mean, even Exodus 20, Exodus 20, which contains the Ten Commandments, verse 2 starts off with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it jumps into this is how you're supposed to live. And what had the people of Israel just seen? They had seen 10 visible signs that God was the master and sustainer of the universe. Then they saw the sea of reeds parted. They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then they were told how they were to live in order to honor that God. And we see that continually, you know, even in the gospels, when John the Baptist is put in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we look Mm -hmm. for someone else? That's a really surprising statement because, you know, John was the first to know who Jesus was. He leapt in utero, (laughs) recognizing Jesus. You know, he at the Jordan, he said, behold, the lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. And then all of a sudden he's like, wait, did I get this right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't chastise him. You know, he doesn't say, just trust in me. He says, go back and he heals people. In in the gospel of Luke, it says he actually heals people in front of the disciples. And then in Matthew, it says, go back and tell John what you hear and see. Yes. You know, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, the dead are being raised, and the poor are having good news preached to them. So, you know, biblically, we put our faith, our trust in God because of the reality of who God is. So this is just so important for our kids to understand that there is solid reasons for putting our trust in the God of the Bible. I'm with you 100%. I love your thinking. It's beautiful and brilliant. How do you tell it to a four-year-old, Elizabeth? Yeah. How do we tell that to a four-year-old? So we're not going to tell a four-year-old exactly what I just said. I would tell that to an eight-year-old. I would walk that that to an eight-year-old. What I would do with a four-year-old is I would just start having them look at clues in the world around us 
that align with what we find in scripture. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like an easy thing to do, you know, four-year-olds, you're generally disciplining them all day, every day. I mean, three-year-olds even more so, you know, just because they're so, (laughs) they're so just, you know, realizing who they are and that sometimes who they are doesn't align with who you want them to be. And so just in moments of discipline afterwards, when emotions aren't as high to actually talk about, why did you do that? Why did you take that toy from your brother? It's because you wanted to. Yeah. And then looking at, okay, what does the Bible tell us about that? The Bible tells us why this happens. The Bible tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. The Bible tells us that we've all fallen short of God's glory so that they're seeing that what they experience actually lines up with scripture. You can do other things with them, just showing them like that the clues in life point to a designer. Like, you know, like when you stop at a stop sign or a red light, you know, say, hmm, what does that stop sign mean for us to do? Or what does that red light mean for us to do? Tells us to stop. Now I have a question. Did that get there by accident? Like one day did this stop sign just make itself? Or one day did a storm come and it, did it just create a red light? No, that didn't happen. Who, who had to put that there and then talk through, oh, it needed to be a person. It needed to be someone to design it. And then talk about, oh, what are other things that are designed? Oh, well, mm-hmm. mommy's phone is designed. And up oh, a house, our house. Could our house have gotten there accidentally? No, it needed builders. And then talk about, hmm, our bodies. Do you know our bodies? They do everything we need them to do. So could our bodies have just gotten here accidentally? No, they needed a designer and then take them to scripture and talk about, you know, God being that designer. So, you know, it's it's really more so just a basic positive apologetic when they're okay. for just showing okay. them everything that they experience in life lines up with scripture. So that leads into one of your other seven lies, and that's the humans are the product of a blind, unguided evolution. And before you, you talk about that, I was, you know, folks that know my story, I was raised Roman Catholic and all in all had a great experience in the Roman Catholic church. I wasn't abused or hurt in any way. I wasn't taught the gospel. Mm-hmm. But they were morally good people, and, and we were theistic evolutionists. Mm-hmm. And when I was in junior high, I was a convinced theistic evolution. And when I came mm-hmm. to Christ outside the Catholic Church, that was a real hard shift for me. Mm-hmm. Took three years of wrestling, going, well, couldn't God have created primordial soup? And the, you know, and it was a friend who said, you know, let's read Genesis one and two. He made man in His image. I went, well. That could have been through the ape. And he said, no, he made him in his image. Mm So I was struck that this was one of your, you know, top seven lies you're concerned about that humans are a product of blind, unguided evolution. Are kids, is that indoctrination so prevalent today? In science classes, yes. <laughs> you know, when in, yeah. in different, you know, things that you're going to find on PBS or on YouTube, you know, it's everywhere even assumed, just assumed. And now you'll notice with the wording that I was very careful with the way that I worded that and that I said blind, unguided evolution. Now, I do not believe that either science or scripture align with theistic evolution, you know, and what, from what I know of both, oh, right. I think that both point to God using other processes to create. But I do know that there are some Christians that do think that God well, used evolutionary processes and no, logically I'm he saying could that I'm, no way I'm I'm saying that was my error. That was my error. And it, it took a long time before as an adult I was going, wait a minute, if he didn't create us in his image at the moment of relationship, then I guess we'd have to look at all primates <laughs> right. as some form of image of God. <laughs> my point is back in your seven lies here, how do you get a young person 
whatever age you want to pick, to start thinking about intelligent design or creation, not blind evolution. With, again, like four to seven-year-olds, just use easy things, like just take them step by step, that teaching that, you know, life has information. You know, we just, we talk about what is information. Information is kind of like a plan that tells our bodies what to do. It's how a mommy kangaroo's body knows to grow a baby kangaroo and not a baby tiger. You know, we talk about that. Then we go in information always comes on purpose. You never get information on accident. And then we talk about how information always comes from an intelligent source. So then we talk about then the intelligent source is God. So we just build that up systematically by playing games with four to seven-year-olds. For eight years old and up, usually like eight to 12-year-olds, what we'll do is we'll actually, we'll play a game with them. We'll do like a little mystery, like solve, solve it mystery. And we'll have them come in the room and there'll be two groups of letter tiles on a table. They'll be identical in that both groups will contain the same exact letters. One group will kind of look like haphazard, like it got thrown there. The other one will spell out the sentence, life contains information. Then we'll have them investigate and we'll ask them questions, say, okay, let's look at this first one, you know, the haphazard group. We'll talk about, okay, do you think these letters got this way purposefully or accidentally? And then we'll talk about why. Like, okay, it looks like they got about by accident because it's kind of just a jumble. And then we'll talk about, well, could they have gotten here this way on purpose? Like, could someone have come in and arranged every single letter tile this way on purpose? Yeah, it's possible. So this one, we think it's accidental, but it's possible that it was purposeful. Then we'll come over to the second group and we'll say, okay, let's look at this. Do you think this one was accidental or do you think this one was purposeful? And then most kids will say on purpose, you know, because it spells out a word. But you'll always have some kids will be like, I don't know. I think it could be accident. And be like, okay, well, let's try it. Okay, so we take a red mm-hmm. Solo cup, put all the letters in, shake it up, you know, dump them out on the table. Okay, let's see. Did we get any words? Uh, I see A and I. Did we get any other words? No. Let's try it again. We'll try it five times, ten times, and say, okay, what if we tried it a hundred times? What if we tried it a thousand times? What if we tried it a million times? Are we ever going to get those letters lined up so perfectly spaced in that exact order? No, we're not going to. And then we'll show them just a you know a basic like PBS clip on DNA and the vast quantities of information that our DNA. You know, some clip mm-hmm. that talks about you know our DNA has more information in it than a library full of books. And so then we'll say, okay, let's talk about what makes sense here. So this random group of letter tiles it could have gotten that way accidentally or purposefully. Either way, it's fine. This other one, we're saying that one sentence had to come about purposefully. Does it make sense then to say that an entire library full of books could have come about accidentally? No, <laughs> it doesn't. If we yeah. can't get one sentence, it's ridiculous to just lengthen the time to say, well, you know, if we actually did this for 100,000 years or 5 million years or 6 billion years, eventually we would have come up with this. No, lengthening the time isn't going to do anything for this. And so just so that they're seeing that, you know, be, just because, you know, we as as adult Christians, we have hopefully, I hope everybody that's claiming the name of Christ is thoroughly convinced that Christianity is true. You know, I, I would hope that. Where a lot of the kids in our care, hope, yeah. a lot of the kids in our One care aren't necessarily there yet. You know, they're going to believe scripture because mommy or daddy believes scripture, because their teacher, because their grandma or grandpa, but they're not necessarily convinced yet that it's actually true on their own. So we want to show them that once they start to question, you know, once they start to wonder, like, is this really true? Is this just a fairy tale? Well, actually, what we find in the biblical narrative actually aligns with what we find in the world 
around us, that it's really, it's not blind faith to trust that we have a creator. It is evidence-based faith. It is Mm evidence-based trust. It is blind faith to believe that we got here accidentally when all of the evidence points in the opposite direction. I had a great theology professor, Norman Geisler, and he would go through Mm. these very quickly, and he would say, a million monkeys and a million typewriters for a million years would never write a sonnet. He would say, a a million hurricanes (laughs) through a million junkyards for a million years would never produce a Boeing 747. And then he would show like a picture of sand dunes and waves and cliffs. And he would say, a million years and a million gallons of water, whatever, yeah, it could make those patterns. But it's never going to do. And it was, it was a, even for my, you know, graduate school mind, that was like, oh, I can, I can grab that one. <laughs> uh, let's go on to a couple more of these. And then I have some questions that Hannah and I worked on. One of them is a good God wouldn't judge. And, you know, we just had a question the other day on, on our podcast about, you know, God judging. And I talked about the five or seven judgments in scripture that most, even most Christians don't understand mm-hmm. that differentiate their different judgments in the Bible. But generically speaking, that's a, you know, that's a loathsome word in our economy. You're judging me. Yeah. And you're saying a good God wouldn't judge as a lie. So how do we help kids and frankly, adults understand this, Elizabeth? Yeah. So this is one that I, a lie that I encountered just kind of in a funny way in my own classroom. One afternoon I was teaching, like, I think it was the cursive letter J to my students. And I was walking around as they were working on it, you know, correcting them. And I, one little girl had made her loop backwards and said, oh, sweetie, you know, like that's the loop for an F. For a J, we need to go the opposite way. And she looks up at me and she goes, don't judge me. And I burst out laughing just because I was not expecting that (laughs) at all. But then we had a conversation. I was like, okay, let's talk about this for a second. What does it mean to judge? We talked about what it means to judge. You know, it means to say, determine whether something is right or wrong. And then I said, okay, now is there a right way to make this letter J and are there some wrong ways? Yes. And I said, okay, as your teacher, is it my job? to make sure that you make your cursive letters correctly. And I said, what do you know? It's my job to judge your handwriting. (laughs) But I think something similar. And you didn't have a parent-teacher conference after that? (laughs) uh, We didn't. We didn't. I I don't know if that that had happened uh, today. I don't know what would happen. Oh, Um, Lord. But, but, you know, our... The culture just teaches, you know, that it's wrong to judge, which is actually kind of funny because that's a moral judgment in itself. It's saying that it's morally wrong to tell someone what else they're doing is morally wrong. So apparently that's the only judgment that's acceptable, even though that statement is self-refuting. But to help our kids understand this, what I like to do is just be really practical. You know, even if they don't know that phrase, don't judge me, or even if even if they're not yet thinking that a good God wouldn't judge, an easy thing to do is to play a game, whether it's in a home situation and you're playing a board game or a church or a school situation where you're going to be playing, you know, a game outside and tell one or two of the kids that just on their own, pull them over to the side and say, you don't need to follow any of the rules and choose one or two that you know are going to have a heyday with this and just say, (laughs) you don't have to follow any of the rules and I'm not going to stop you. Now, obviously you have to put some parameters on this. You know, you can't do, you can't put kids in a situation that's dangerous, but all of the other kids are going to have this huge outcry of this is not fair, you know, especially when you as the adult aren't doing anything. So you're not going to be able to let the game go on for too long because, emotions are going to be super high. But you can then debrief when everybody's calmed down, okay, and you explain this was actually a setup to talk about, 
okay, what makes you say that this was unfair? You know, that there's a standard of justice. Mm -hmm. And then say, okay, me as your mom or as your dad or as your teacher or as, you know, like ministry volunteer or as your pastor, what would have been the right thing for me to do in this situation? Well, the right thing for me to do would have been to have this person stop and to take them out of the game so that everyone else could play fairly. And so then to bring that to, okay, you know, who is ultimately the judge of the entire universe? You know, that's God. That's God. And so would God be a good God if at the end of the age, he just looked at everyone and said, oh, you know what? I know you really mistreated your brother or your sister. I know, you know, like just give some examples that our kids find really unfair. Would a good God say, I know you did that, but you know what? It's okay. No big deal. Come on in. Like, no, that would not be a good God. And then when they learn about history, you know, you just use extreme examples. Like you think about Hitler. Like would a good God just say, oh, well, Hitler, you know, I I know you tried hard and you did the best that you could. So come on in. Like, no, (laughs) you know, every single human would have a huge outcry against that. So just making things very practical for kids to see, like, actually, we all want justice. That is what our hearts cry for. (laughs) Okay, let's get into some a little more uh, indelicate but relevant topics. We're in an LGBTQAI plus world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't turn on any media outlet, whether it's a Hollywood star, a Twitter feed, Instagram, where this isn't front and center on everything. Yeah. And I, I witness it as a pastor that Christian parents have lost their courage to kindly say, no, you know, that's not, God made us male or female. Mm. He didn't make us all these iterations. And now back to your point, I'm judging, of course. So how do you (laughs) broach this with young children? And I mean, there's American neighborhoods listening to you and me, moms and dads, who they've got gay neighbors. They've got, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, two women uh, parenting, two men parenting. They've got kids who are, you know, transitioning, perhaps. They've got an LGBTQ flag in the front yard. This is not unusual anymore. How do we weigh into this? Yeah. So one thing that I always encourage parents to do is that we have to be the first ones to, and when I say we, I don't have children of my own, but parents, you need to be the first ones to talk with your children about sex and sexuality and God's good design, because our children are going to be confronted with deviations from that good design from a very young age. Like unless you lock them in your house and don't have any internet, which I don't recommend either of those things, you know, they're going to be confronted with this. And if we wait to talk with our children about sex and sexuality until they encounter a deviation from God's good design, we're going to have to, the first conversation that we have with them about this is then going to be a negative one. And therefore, they are from that point on going to view sex and sexuality in a negative light, where sex, like any other creation of God, when used in its proper context, is a good gift. And we want our children to understand that so that then when they encounter a deviation from God's design, they already have the foundation to understand that. And they don't view sex and sexuality and gender as things that are bad. So I actually just two days ago, Christopher, you and I, you mentioned Christopher before, um, he and I did a webinar that was live and we answered people's questions. 
about sex and sexuality for kids. And we actually recommended that parents start having the conversation, had the first conversation about sex and gender and sexuality with their children at three. And that, you know, like you don't have to go into the same detail that you would go into with an eight or nine or 10 year old. But if you wait beyond three, you're just going to be doing damage control (laughs) and you Mm -hmm. want your kids to understand that. And I I told the story, you know, even my mom was a bit ahead of her time in this and that she didn't have to talk with my siblings and I about God's design for sex and for marriage at such a young age, but she wanted it to be, her goal was she wanted us to never be able to remember a time in our lives when we didn't know that sex existed just so that we would come to her when we had any questions. And so this was back, I was probably four four or five or six years old. And this was back in like the late eighties, early nineties. And we were in the grocery store and we passed, you know, just the magazines on the checkout. And it was, I think it was Newsweek. There was the cover of Newsweek and there was like a gay rights march on the front cover. And, you know, back then my mom didn't have to explain that to me, but I looked at the cover and I said, mommy, why are those men so angry? You know, cause I just remember like there was like yelling and fists being raised. And my mom said, well, Elizabeth, some people, they believe that men should be able to have sex with men and that men should be able to marry men. And she said, but let's think about what do we talk about? What is God's good design? And, you know, as a, I don't, I was somewhere between four and six, you know, so as a little kid, I was able to say, oh, well, God created sex for a husband and a wife and a husband and a wife are supposed to get married, you know? And so like, it wasn't a big thing. Like, obviously it stuck in my mind, but it wasn't like this huge hush hush thing. It was just like, I already knew God's good design. And then when we encountered a deviation from it, it was really easy for my mom to have that conversation with me. So I would just really encourage parents just to start that conversation young. If you're not sure how to have that conversation, there's a great course. It's just called... It's called the birds and the bees. I think if you just Google birds dash bees, it's a great curriculum put out by two Christian women just walking parents through like, how do you have the conversation about body parts? Mm -hmm. How do you have a conversation about sex? How do you have a conversation about conception? How do you have a conversation about birth? All these things. So if you're just looking for practical resources, that's a great one that's out there. So yeah, so encourage just building up that positive theology of God's good design so that then when we encounter deviations from it, it's not this huge thing. I'm sure there's far better materials now just because of, you know, technology. But Cindy and I, there were two different ones. One was a Lutheran publication and one was a Nav Press. And we call them the sex pack because they were <laughs> age-appropriate books for, mm, the you know, more yeah. abstract and concrete. And then, you know, Biology 101, but they yeah. were great. And we did them with all our kids. And that was a fun lesson, too, because some kids were... They were, you know, oh, this is cool to learn about. Some were like, gross, even <laughs> early ages. Yeah. So it was it was insightful for Cindy and me to realize, you know, people respond differently to this material. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, one of my mentors often said the best way to encourage your children to have a healthy view of sex and marriage is for you and your wife to be demonstrable in appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. And so when Cindy and I would hug and kiss in the kitchen, of course, it would gross the kids out. They'd, <laughs> you know, but we, we were overt in trying yeah. to show physical affection, you know, appropriately, obviously, yeah. Yeah. in front of them to say, look, mom and dad, even though we're old and it's gross for you to think about, uh, we love each other. And mm-hmm. this is the gift God gave us, the way you said it, gift. Okay, so let's talk about one more, and then I'll toss one to you about, you know, what do I need to ask you? Pro-choice versus pro-life, because this, I mean, right now, while we're recording this, Roe v. Wade, and we're seeing the, uh, mm-hmm. the pro-abortion and the pro-life groups become so inflamed right now. It's an interesting time to watch, but kids are seeing this too, Mm. whether it's the friend's house or whatever social media they're exposed to. You can't not see the pro-abortion movement 
really loud right now. So how do we talk to our kids about this critically? Yeah. So this is another one where I'm going to go back to the whole wax on, wax off about truth versus feelings. You know, we need to have these these foundational conversations where we talk about the difference, you know, between something that is objectively true, that's something that's a truth versus something that's just a feeling, you know, that's going to change from person to person because the whole pro-choice argument, you know, is all about feelings, you know, my body, my choice, you know, I don't feel like this is a person, I don't feel attached to this person. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. And so also to have another foundational conversation to have with little ones and then to build upon as kids grow is the fact that humans are God's image bearers so that they understand that every single person is an image bearer. In our materials for four to seven-year-olds, one of the lessons that we have is just all on how humans are created in God's image. And we show kids pictures of all different people, like people with all different levels of melanin in their skin, you know, so all different skin colors. We show people that look like they're from the United States, people that look like they're from a very tribal region of the world. We show pictures of people who have Down syndrome. We show pictures of people in wheelchairs. We show pictures of babies, pictures of ultrasounds. And every time we ask the kids, we have the kids do a body movement for, is this an image bearer or not an image bearer? And every time they see a picture of a human, they have to say image bearer so that they're understanding that every single human bears the image of God. And then we encourage parents just in very practical situations, you know, when they get frustrated with their brother or sister, once emotions have de-escalated, you know, to talk about that your brother is an image bearer, your sister is an image bearer, that we can model this when we're in traffic. You know, like when somebody cuts us off Mm -hmm. and we're like, oh, that was frustrating. But you know what? Mommy's going to be kind because that person, even what they though what they did was wrong, that person is an image bearer. And so just really in really practical situations to have this vocabulary about this person is an image bearer. So then you know, when we have these conversations about, you know, what's going on, whether they, you know, see it on the news or they see someone protesting something to have this conversation, you know, some people believe that if a mommy doesn't want to be a mommy, if she doesn't want to have a baby, that it's okay to just get rid of the baby, to kill the baby. Now, from what we know about humans, what do we know about humans? Well, how are humans created? Well, they're in the image of God. So, hmm, a baby inside a mommy, is that baby created in God's image? Yeah. But what about, you know, we don't know the baby yet. We haven't seen the baby's face. We might not even love the baby yet, but is that baby still created in God's image? Yeah, it is. So what are we doing if we say that somebody can choose to get rid of their baby? We're saying that it's okay to get rid of or to kill an image bearer. So just to have these to have these foundational conversations with our kids so that then when cultural issues come up, you know, they're prepared to face that. We do a similar game just talking about gender. You know, in Genesis 127, it talks about humans being created in God's image as male and female. So we even, we play a little game with kids and we, you know, we give them situations. Well, you know, like we'll say something like, you know, Brianna has a girl's body. She loves playing ice hockey and doing woodworking with her dad and hanging out with her best friend, Tim. Is Brianna a girl image bearer or a boy image bearer? That's right. She's a girl image bearer. Why? Because God gave Brianna a girl's body. You know, so just little things like that to set the stage in a fun, playful way so that then when they encounter these issues in culture, you know, they're going to understand them. Now, we cannot control what comes out of their mouths, and which is the hard thing, (laughs) you know, when we're in culture, but we can start to train them, you know, like, do we need to run over to somebody 
who's dressing like a girl but is actually a boy? Do we need to run over that to them and tell them that they're actually a boy? No, that's not our job. Our job is to love them and to be their friend, but we need to make sure that we know the truth. <laughs> that's excellent. That's excellent. Okay, what haven't I asked you that is like a burden? You said, Michael, you should have asked me this. Oh, I think you asked me a whole lot of great questions. I think the one thing that we haven't gotten to that I just have a burden and a passion for is making sure that in our Bible instruction that we are giving our kids the skills that they need to soundly read, interpret, and apply scripture. Because this was another real weakness that I saw when I was at the Christian school, that I planned these wonderful, engaging Bible lessons for my students. And one day I sat there and I thought, what's going to happen over the summer when I'm not here to plan these lessons? And I thought, nothing. And so a lot of times, you know, we'll do devotionals with our kids, which is a great thing to do, you know, or plan really engaging Bible lessons in church or in school, but we don't actually give kids the skills that they need. Like we don't teach them the whole narrative of scripture. We don't teach them how to read a verse in context. We don't teach them the difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts. You know, we don't teach them how to use Bible maps. We don't teach them about genres. You know, how do you read a Psalm differently than you read the gospels, which are biography? How do you read a book of history different than you read the law? And so that's just another thing that I really like to encourage parents Mm -hmm. and church leaders and Christian educators, just be thinking about how can we give our kids these skills that they need because we don't, we want them to be self feeders. You know, we don't want to be cooking them breakfast when they're 25, nor do we want them to be dependent on (laughs) us when they're 25 to read, interpret and apply scripture. Well, we've been talking to Elizabeth Urbanowitz and we'll have all the information in the show notes about Foundation Worldview and looking at the website. You've got places for homeschools, for churches, for individuals. I don't say this kind of thing often, but Cindy and I are more and more animated and convinced if you don't have some other support system besides your public school even a good private classical education and maybe even a good christian school you really need to open uh some of these resources and see what else is available i've been stimulated by talking to elizabeth and just thinking about boy if i could go back and do it again what i would do with my kids and we were especially cindy was very involved in their education, but uh, things are changing. It's a different landscape. Elizabeth Urbanowitz, again, Foundation Worldview, all the information on our uh, show notes, or you can just search her name and foundations. You'll find it right away. Thanks for your time. God bless you. And yeah, what a great treat to meet you. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to be with you today. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.